Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Hope and Hard Pills. I am Alicia T. Crosby, and joining me today as co-host is Nandi K. Hey Nandi. Hey, so excited to be here. Nice little guest spot. I am super excited to have you here. So everyone, Dre is on a break this week. Um, and actually, you'll be on break for the next couple of episodes, but we're going to be introducing you to different members of the Hope and Hard Pills team um, who you may have seen their names before, but you haven't actually heard them. And so this is an opportunity to get to know some of our team members a little bit better. But Nandi, before we get into this episode, which is going to be amazing because we have interviewed like the super, super, super dope Rachel Ricketts, let's tell our listeners a little bit about you. Yeah, so um, I am the content coordinator over at Hope and Heart Pills. So uh, some people might remember me from Hope and Heart Pills talks that we did last year. And then if you see any uh, social, that's usually me on social. Um, so yeah, I'm out here just kind of reminding the people that change can actually happen. It has happened. And, you know, just trying to keep everybody up on what they can do and why they should be doing it. So I'm super excited to join this kind of piece of the podcast because the Hope and Harpers talks used to be great. Um, and again, like obviously, like you said, Rachel Ricketts is super dope. So I'm super excited to talk uh, specifically on this episode because she says so many things that resonate with me personally. Same. Hard, hard, same. As you know, our aim at Hope and Hard Pills is to provide practical insights for racial justice and social change. And Rachel definitely does that work today. So sit back, enjoy this interview with spiritual activist Rachel Ricketts. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Yeah, well, let's get into it. Um, one thing that I notice for people who are doing anti-racism work online is that people think that that's all you're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wondered if you just describe your work for us. Sure. I mean, this one's tough. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, I'm black, right? So I do 8 million things. Um, <laughs> other than live on Instagram, which I'm honestly actively trying to spend as like the least amount of time on that mm -hmm, racist mm -hmm. platform as possible. Um, <laughs> I host anti-racism <laughs> webinars and live workshops around the world. And um, I'm just I'm writing currently working on um, my book proposal for a book that I hope will come out soon. Yeah, and um, just constantly um, speaking, creating content, and writing about racial justice and the intersectionality between white supremacy and heteropatriarchy, and the ways in which it specifically impacts uh, Black and Indigenous women of color. Mm. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, I noticed that you were really working at that intersection, and I wondered if you could just comment on on that some because I know that. It seems like, okay, so there's some people who, in focusing on racism, may miss some of the uh, gender oppression mm -hmm. that is involved there. And 
it seems like there are a lot of people in focusing on the patriarchy mm-hmm. often miss the color line. Mm-hmm. So, oh, white women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I just don't, I mean, I, I exist in a world as a black woman. And so it is impossible for me to untangle patriarchy from racism. I, I can't parse out in a single instance of oppression and discrimination, whether I am being more oppressed because I'm a woman or being specifically discriminated because I am black. It is the intersectionality between those two things. Um, and I happen to be straight and cisgendered, but I believe that all discrimination and oppression are linked. Um, and we will not mm. free any form until we have freed all forms. And so it is my duty as having privilege of being a cisgendered straight individual to um, also speak to the, he- the heteronorm- heteronormativity of the patriarchy um, mm. and speak out and, and against all forms of oppression and discrimination. And so when I say women, I'm including gender, nonconforming, non-binary, trans, intersex, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and um, also speaking to the oppression faced by poor people, by um, differently able people, fat people, um, immigrants, mm-hmm. uh, certain religious groups, you name it. Like we need to be addressing all forms of oppression and discrimination simultaneously. Mm. So I, I notice that spirituality is a big part of what you're, you're doing. Like you have spiritual activism workshops and all this other kind of thing. And I wondered if you could talk to me about your, your commitment to spirituality in doing this work. Yeah, it's, Listen, there's so many ways to do this work, right? And there's so many of us who are doing this work in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's that intersection of spirituality with activism. Like, I don't believe that you can be a spiritual person and not in some way, shape, or form be an activist. Mm-hmm. If you deeply feel that we are all interconnected and woven and that my oppression is your oppression, then you best be doing something about my oppression <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because, it's, because it's your own. Whether you are uh, facing it in this embodiment, in this lifetime, on this planet, in this moment or not. Right. So I also really deeply believe that there's a time and space for us to analyze and to really move deeply into uh, critique or um, a neck up understanding of what is going on in the world, what social justice is, what racial justice is about and what's required. But I also... Mm -hmm deeply feel that there is a larger need at this point in time for a heart-centered embodied approach, yeah. a way forward for us to be and move from compassion for ourselves, especially mm-hmm. if you're oppressed yeah. um, and for others. And if we can resonate with that through every cell of our body, with this understanding of our interconnectedness and this piece of us that's larger than ourselves, if we can see things outside of ourselves. We have a larger capacity for empathy. We have a larger capacity uh, for compassion, and therefore we have a larger capacity to actually implement changes for mm-hmm. ourselves and for the collective. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. I want to ask you more about that. Um, for because you know, I think it's it's surprising sometimes for me how often I run into, you know, on many different levels, just different freedom fighters and activists throughout history who really do put an emphasis on what you're saying, the the intangible part of this, the interior part of this. You know, um, I'm just finishing up Malcolm X's autobiography and I was just struck with his um his comments about his own self-transformation. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, for for me, someone who kind of feels a bit alienated from uh, the spirituality that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, uh, Pentecostal Christianity, and mm-hmm. it's been difficult for me to find my way back into like a spiritual connection, right? And so I wonder about other listeners that kind of have felt like, well, maybe they need to just be an out and out materialist to care about justice mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and who hear this and go, you know, I want a connection. I want the spiritual connection, but I don't even really, really know what that would look like for me. Like, what do you, what do you think you would, how do you think you would respond to someone who feels like that? That's a beautiful question. Um, I think spirituality is deeply intertwined with our intuition um, mm. and with our like embodied human connection and physical existence on this earth um, and, and, and a deep relationship with ourself. Mm. So my spirituality is not an organized religion and I completely appreciate um, that there's a time and space for organized religion and it works for a lot of people. And I also deeply appreciate that a lot of folks who grew up within an organized religion who they no longer identify with or perhaps never did. Uh, identify with and so mm-hmm. this notion of spirituality can get very tied up in that yeah but i think spirituality is deeply personal it, at mm-hmm. the same time as being entirely collective so mm-hmm. i would say um for those listeners who are struggling with that connection or untangling maybe a, a former understanding or story or script around spirituality is like what what i don't know what lights you up and turns you on in terms of your connection with yourself Mm. Um, and what are your thoughts or wonderings about a higher self? Mm. What, you know, it doesn't have to be a God or goddess, mm-hmm. just this notion of something that is larger than us. And I'm not e- even suggesting that you need to believe in that if that's not something you believe in, but just a curiosity around what your beliefs are around it. Cause you might find mm. you're actually deeply spiritual. You just haven't named it as such or thought about it in those terms. Yeah. That's beautiful. Okay. We could talk about that all day. But I have more <laughs> questions for you. Well, I guess I do have one more question about spirituality because I just thought the phrase intersectional spirituality in your mm-hmm. bio was so interesting. And I wondered if you could mention, uh, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. I mean, so many things. Um, <laughs> but I mean, mostly this notion. Okay. So spirituality has been whitewashed as has everything else. Right. And so, um, you know, when I was doing like strictly grief coaching work, um, and death doula work, I was introduced to, to the, what I call wealth and wellness industry, Mm. which is white (laughs) and capitalistic and like so far from spiritual, um, you know, I'm being judgmental, but yeah, I'm being judgmental. (laughs) So you're you're addressing the grief. You're telling the truth. Uh (laughs) So and it's sad that I feel like it needs to be said that it, like those words need to be required, like intersectional, intersectional sense of spirituality. So I mean, culturally sensitive, non-appropriative mm-hmm. spirituality that honors the communities that they're created by the roots of the offerings um, and the, the honest and integral intention behind mm-hmm. what they were created for, which is, is connection, you know, connection for us to be seen, understood and healed as and how we are, which is not Mm. what's going on in mainstream spirituality, right? Like people Mm. of color are being um, excluded from access Mm. to healing. And the majority of the modalities being taught were created by and for us. Mm, 
Wow. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of outside that world. So, but I have heard that kind of thing. You know, um, I have a friend, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, and she just started doing some teaching around the Enneagram. Oh, yeah. And the reason why she started was because she felt, you know, she was mentioning kind of what you're saying is that she was like, there are no women of color or people of color that she knew of that were like popular Enneagram teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of crazy because it comes out of, um, you know, Swana culture. It comes from ancient Muslims and Christians. Mm-hmm. I guess, like, is yoga an example of something that you're talking about? Like, because oh, I, yeah. I know. <laughs> Prime example. You know, like the top, I talk about this a lot, the top yoga teachers are white. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes you're in a space if you do yoga. I do yoga, I do it at home because I refuse to go into a studio because they're all appropriative. <laughs> And wow. all, but major, majoritively is that a word? Predominantly <laughs> whitewashed. Um, and the teachers are white and the, the students are white and they charge an exorbitant amount that you know costs out a lot of people. And um it's violent. Mm. And that's what I call a form of violence. Spiritual bypassing, it is not honoring the roots. And like, how are there no major south asian yoga teachers when it is a south asian practice that is just despicable right yeah no that's crazy no i i really appreciate the the candor that you (laughs) i really do i really appreciate the candor that you speak with and i feel like black women especially i follow a lot of black women that are that are doing anti-racism work and that is like a I see a, a common theme there and I, I just, I admire it really. So along those lines, you wrote an article, um, giving up on white comfort. And I wondered if you could talk about that some. So I wrote this article the year I gave up white comfort, which is, which was really a form of catharsis about like the grief and loss. I was just speaking to about, you know, leaving my community. So I'm in Sweden now. So it was the first time I left my community and was able again, once you're actually outside of it to really stand back and take a deep, honest and a more objective view of like what's been going on and who people were and who you were and who you were in relationships um, to others. And um, so this is really my ode to that community to uh, and that community spe- specifically in a larger context, right? Of like kind of all white people everywhere. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. <laughs> all white people everywhere, but especially the white folks. Um, who are the most attached to the status quo, which is white supremacy, Mm -hmm. who are the most, uh, who are benefiting the most from, um, yeah, white supremacist, heteropatriarchy, therefore having the most power and privilege, Mm -hmm. meaning they're mostly predominantly uh, liberal or like seemingly liberal and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, financially stable, if not like just Mm -hmm. downright fucking filthy rich. So... (laughs) This was my ode to them. And it was just, it was me said, being really clear for everyone, for myself and for everyone else about mm-hmm. what my boundaries are and like what's required to um, engage with, with me. And I said it personally in my own context, because again, it was like a form of catharsis for me. But I also think in terms of a larger context of like how you can engage with people of color, specifically black women, because I am a black woman. So I'm always going to speak from my own personal experience first to cause less harm because white supremacy is causing people of color harm day in, day out. Every relationship that a person of color has with a white person includes harm because mm. of the white supremacist heteropatriarchy that we live in. There's mm-hmm. just no way around that. And so I do have 
close relationships with white folks. Surprise. Um, (laughs) And those are the folks, you know, those are the folks who are doing their work and who are honoring those boundaries that I set out in that article. So it was a, it was a like, kind of like cue Diana Ross. I'm coming out. It was like a, like, this is it. Um, (laughs) And this is like, you don't have to do these things. I'm not like going to stand here and point fingers at you. I'm just getting really clear about what's okay and what's not okay with me because I've been subjected to so much violence my whole life as have most people of color. Um, and I'm just done as much as I can be right. Like it's never going to be done. We live in a white supremacist world. Uh, it's global, but to the extent that I have control over my relationships, like these are my boundaries. I have boundaries with my father that I haven't spoken to in five years as well. Like I'm very Mm -hmm. clear about with lots of therapy and and inner work. (laughs) I'm very clear about what works for me and what doesn't. And we're all adults. You can do whatever the hell you want. Truly, right. you know, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying like, okay, but if you want to like hang with me, this is, this is where I'm at. And this is what is required for it to be a sufficiently safe relationship for me to engage. Right. I, I think that a lot of non-Black people don't understand why the, that kind of boundary in particular, like to say, listen, I, I have a small circle of white people that I trust mm-hmm. <laughs> and that are, that I consider friends. and that's necessary right mm-hmm. uh, and and that giving up you know white comfort especially if you're going to be telling the truth about race you know i don't think that i it seems obvious uh-huh. <laughs> you know from 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 this side mm-hmm. of the fence for me <laughs> but i feel like when i talk to different people that are not black that it's hard for them to wrap their brain around the legitimacy of doing that the necessity of doing that um, there was some other nice word that I wanted to throw out there. That it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Uh, we've we've heard that you you're born in Canada, mm-hmm. you're living in Sweden, mm-hmm. traveling a lot, and dealing with racism. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> people in America seem to think that racism only exists here. I know, I know, well aware. <laughs> So what what are you what are you seeing as you travel from country to country, teaching about racism, anti racism? Yeah, what do what do you observe? And or oh gosh, there's so many ways to attack this because I want to I want to hear about your experience mm-hmm. of anti blackness abroad for us, and also the things that you're challenge like that you're challenging the kind of pushback that you're or the kind of challenges that you face in doing your work abroad yeah oh okay i do think it's really important and i explicitly address it as much as i possibly can in all of my work that racism white supremacy anti-blackness anti-indigeneity are global and Mm -hmm. this hyper focus on america can be not only unhelpful but harmful like damaging right because then there is this context by which the rest of the world's like well we're not america and so we're good. We're fine. Mm, you know, and I'm yeah. Canadian. And so we are just your neighbor to the North. And there's this, the whole Canadian dialogue around racism, like we're the melting pot. You know, we are, <laughs> and it's like literally a Canadian identity is essentially just like non-American identity. And it, which is, it's a whole own thing, but there's wow. this notion of like, but we are not racist because we don't, we don't see color. Colorblindness is like a very Canadian mm, mm-hmm. phenomenon what I'm going to call it. Cause it's fucking imaginary. <laughs> 
And so that's where I grew up. Like, but we don't see color. I never noticed you were black. I literally had like a friend I've known for 20 years, obviously white, like two years ago. Be like, I have to apologize to you because I never really like it. Noticed you were black. I never I noticed. Like, what the fuck is this conversation? And she had just like she felt good about herself, right? Because she's doing her work. Like that's not doing work. I'm just standing there like, what? Are you like I've known I you since I was thirteen? You didn't know I was black because you're white and you don't have to notice all the ways in which this world treats me differently and oppresses and discriminates me day in day out. And I don't talk about it with you because you're not a safe person to talk about it with. Anyways, I digress. Oh wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're not friends anymore. Um, <laughs> but so Canada is this like well you know or the, like well no one's ever called you a nigger Rachel so you can't say that racism exists here no one's ever treated you differently or um yeah get this community that I come from is like well Ra- Rachel ha- she grew up with money what is she talking about with this racism context mm. like oh right because you know if you have money you no longer face racism first of all no I don't secondly <laughs> that ain't true so Canada is this just we're not the U.S. but we treat our indigenous population, our First Nations population. They did a study, I think maybe three or four years ago now. Um, and the side-by-side comparison statistically of how Canada as a nation treats its indigenous population versus how America treats its black population was worse. Mm. Side-by-side incarceration mm. rates, suicide rates, poverty rates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we just don't talk about it in Canada at wow. all. There's no conversation about, you know, I think there's like 40 resident, uh, 40 reserves in Canada that don't have clean water that have had boiling water advisories for like 10, 20 years. And that's just status quo. It's just not, you know, we're just, it's polite racism is what I call it, which is obviously Mm -hmm. not a thing. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's just not talked. It's just not even discussed. And so there was a part of me always growing up that I was like, but at least like America is the crazy place for sure with this really specific race relations, um, experience but i'm like if you think i'm a nigger i would just so rather you call me a nigger to my face until i know where you stand and i can like move from Mm -hmm. that as opposed to having to navigate my entire life being in spaces where people for sure looked at me as though i was a nigger and treated me as though i was one but would never say it and so there's nothing that you could point to yeah i'm not saying one better than the other i'm saying my personal experience was always like i I wish there was something and so trump being elected for me was like okay well, what are you going to say about it now? <laughs> you know, and the Make America Great Again hat. It's like, okay, you're calling me a nigger when you put that hat on. So I know yeah. where I stand with you. And um, yeah, you know what you're getting. You know exactly what you're getting. <laughs> um, and I'm in no way, shape, or form trying to downplay like there's in- incredible violence happening. You know, physically, legislatively, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, yeah. for sure, in the United States, without question. But mm-hmm. I would say that that has been happening forever, and it's just being brought to the surface now. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I could go on all day about, you know, Trump's, Trump's necessity in terms of our collective, uh, rising. Yeah. I was just about to say, I find it interesting that for someone who is not in America, that Trump's election and the MAGA hat and all that kind of stuff seems just as salient to you as it does to us. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I never, and there for, so here's the global conduct. There was never any a distinction for me personally. I, I'm Canadian, obviously, so it was really close, but there was never a distinction. When I see like black people getting shot in the United States, there's no, just, I don't feel like, oh, well, uh-huh. that's an American. That's me. Mm-hmm. You are yeah. me. I am you. That's yeah. it. I don't care where you come yeah. from. I don't care if you are, if you call yourself African-American, if you're Caribbean, if you're wherever, when you get to America and you have black skin, that's it. And it's not that different mm-hmm. in Canada. It's just not discussed. You know, we have um, police violence against black communities 
Toronto has a lot of statistics on that because we have that has the largest black population again, right? I'm from Vancouver, so I was one of like five black people. So it's not a lot that I can say because it's just <laughs> not enough of us. But I assure you, if there were enough of us, it wouldn't look differently. Mm. So that's the Canadian yeah. context. Globally, I'm in Sweden. So this is one of the deemed to be one of the most progressive liberal countries in Europe, if not in the world. And it, it ain't it. You know, like mm. um, we're in a time where there's a resurgence of the alt-right globally. Not just Trump, yes. but um, Denmark isn't. Um, so I live in Sweden, but I'm right next to Copenhagen. So I'm like in the suburbs mm-hmm. of Copenhagen, which is a, is a whole other mm-hmm. thing. So I'm in Sweden and Denmark. And so Denmark is in the midst of an election and they have like essentially like just a white supremacist fascist party that has a mm-hmm. lot of support right now. Sweden has mm-hmm. um, locked its borders. You know, they had have been taking in a yeah. lot of refugees, a lot of migrants. I live in the most diversity in Sweden, in the most diverse neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it is quite diverse, but way more diverse than what I was used to living in Canada. Um, yeah. and, but it's again, totally segregated, totally segregated. Mm-hmm. And because Sweden is this nation of like, you know, you can look at people immediately and seemingly be like, Oh, you're Swedish or not based on the color of your skin. Um, there mm-hmm. is this total sense of otherness, you know, by virtue of being mm-hmm. an immigrant of color, I feel it every day. And I get very concerned for my well being when I walk around and I see like groups of white men specifically um i'm worried there are day daily instances of of anti-blackness and racism um religious persecution um they had a, an election right when i got here um in the fall or like late summer early fall and they also had a resurgence of an alt-right group racist alt-right group mm-hmm. so again i'm not trying to compare it to um like mass police shootings of black people has is what's Mm -hmm. happening in the united states but this notion of like i keep joking like i'm searching for wakanda and it's really heartbreaking honestly to travel as much as i do and and feel that anti-blackness that racism that stench of white supremacy everywhere i go Um, my partner Mm -hmm. is mixed he's um part filipino and so when we think about where we want to settle down and have our children where do we feel sufficiently safe doing that um both having really really harmful experiences growing up where we grew yeah. up. Um, he grew up in Hawaii. You know, I don't know where that is. Okay. I don't know where in the world yeah. I feel, I feel safe as a black woman and where in the world I feel like my kids will be safe. I don't like, mm. I don't think there is a place though. So it's just like, where can we feel sufficiently safe? And that's right. really heartbreaking. Yeah. And like white people and non-black people don't really get that. It's hard for them to understand. No. Yeah, that sure. that anti-blackness is global, um, and so is anti-indigeneity, and it's across all races and cultures. That's why I advocate for Black and Indigenous women the most because we exist in this intersection of both patriarchy and global cultural anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity, including within our mm. own culture. It's 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 really it's just really heartbreaking. I hear that. I hear that. Yeah, it's it's so true that. Um... Like you, you're, you've hinted at a couple of times that even in our, even in our own communities, like we have believed these anti-black stories, we've subscribed to these anti-black logics, and so, mm-hmm. you know, as someone is listening and they they say, well, wait a minute, you're a black, you're a black woman, but there's nowhere in the world, like not even in majority black countries, that you would say like, that you feel safe, and it's like, well, I mean, my family is Jamaican, mine too, like. Like fresh off the boat, Jamaican. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Favorite kind. And I can't, 
I can't say like I'll just go back to Jamaica, like because in Jamaica they don't consider me Jamaican, right? Because I was born in America, uh-huh. you know. Um, yeah, and you know, so thinking like where are where are black folks of of the diaspora, you know, North American black people, like if you wanted to expatriate to somewhere. <laughs> Where could you go where people would say, welcome home, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think it exists that we have to create our own homes. And so both my parents are Jamaican and they like they left and they left. Like they both separately left and met in Canada and married mm, in Canada and they never went mm, back. Like the trauma yeah. that they both individually endured in Jamaica, they're like, not. Nah. Um, which was really hard for me as a first generation, like, you know, only black kid in my whole, whole white neighborhood. Like I had no connection. And so when I finally did go back mm. to Jamaica, though, I have to say, I was like, Oh yeah, no, this place is crazy. I get it. <laughs> it's not like, if you want to talk about patriarchy, like, Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Which again, this is really heartbreaking. You're like, Oh, these are my roots that I'm going to like feel right. this connection and this sense of home. Like, nah, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Um, and so the, for me, First of all, I'm incredibly privileged to do the work I do to travel the world, period. Um, That's a privilege without question. I'm at a point, like I said, where we're trying to figure out like, okay, well, where can we reside? And, and right now, you and I were talking before this, like right now it's, it's the U S and every time I say this to an American, they're like, are you insane? You must be, (laughs) you must have bunked your head. Um, Yeah. When you said that you're going to come here, mm -hmm. that you and your partner are going to come here for a while. (laughs) People, okay, so we were off the air. Uh, Rachel said that she she and her partner are going to maybe settle in America for a little bit. And I said, why would you ever come here? <laughs> and I hear that. Um, but there's at least um, enough diversity. And I mean that in terms of like not just races and ethnicities and cultures, but values um, mm-hmm. and morals. And um, of all the places in the world that I travel these days, America it has the largest gap. It's like a sliding scale. Right. Mm. But America is the most attuned to this conversation. And so doing the work that I do, that's clearly where I'm the most needed. Obviously it's also dumpster fire. Like (laughs) all the things that are going on are just absolutely insane. And so I also feel, um, in a larger sense to where I'm most needed, but like selfishly, I also need to be in a place where I can nurture myself and have a sense of community that nurtures and nourishes me. Mm -hmm. Um, and as of right now, I can only feel that space being in America. And I was talking about this with another black activist who's American and she was like, you know, I don't know why you would ever want to live here, except from what you told me, I I appreciate that like everywhere is a dumpster fire. And at least here there's other black people that like, get it, (laughs) that get you. And I'm like, yeah, basically like there are lots of black people in Sweden. There's a lot of Afro Swedes, but it is a different dynamic. Right. Right. You know, and it's that same, like, but I'm not African because I'm mm-hmm. not, and mm-hmm. I'm certainly not Swedish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually don't feel like we have a lot in common. Actually, it was at the train station the other day and the, waiting for the train and this um, African man came up to you. Just started talking to me. He showed me this photo and he was like, what is this? Like, show, me, show me a photo of two men. Um, and one of them was like dressed in a dress with a purse. Uh-huh. And he was just so upset and i was like you are talking to the wrong person <laughs> like i was like well what's wrong with that i just gave him like a whole gender like lecture essentially he was just not expecting that from me because he looked at me and was like oh there's no like we're both black i'm gonna sit next to you and have this conversation and we have this mutual ground and i'm like nah dog we don't we don't we're black but we are having different experiences yeah no i hear that 
I hear that. Well, we welcome you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Trump we, does not, but yeah. <laughs> so um, how can people um, get in touch with you, learn, you know, from the the services and products that you are, I hate, I hate saying service and products, you know, but oh, yeah. I mean, it's I not, they're not commodities, but yeah. Um, but the offerings that you have <laughs> for people to learn and grow um, in this area, where can they find that? Yeah, thank you. Um, so everything is located on my site, www.rachelricketts.com. And um, I have a shop there and I hate that it's called a shop, but that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, my workshops, my anti-racism workshops, spiritual activism 101 and 102 are offered there. And I have um, a workbook for getting spiritually activated to um, start the deep inner dive to be able to really authentically engage in racial justice work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the the primary space I have. Um, all my articles and stuff live on that space. I also have a anti-racism resource list that is um, mm. always growing. And I love the resources in your newsletter. I'm always oh, so grateful you. to you and those are so great. Um, so yeah, I keep adding to that list and a lot of them are, are <laughs> there's usually, there's quite a few now that, that you've sent me. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, Rachel, it's been such a such a pleasure to talk with you and hear about your work and all of that. And I'm so excited to share this with uh, the folks with the Hope and Hard Pills list. Thank you. It's um, an honor. I really appreciate the work that, that you're doing and to uh, have this conversation. It's my pleasure. No, it doesn't have to be hard. doesn't have to be this way. doesn't have to be So, Nandi, I know that I got a lot from this episode. <laughs> um, and hearing this interview and this exchange between Andre and Rachel. But I would love to hear your thoughts. So she says so many things that kind of like resonated with me. And so did Andre. But um, kind of my big takeaways, obviously, number one is like that intersection of like racism and gender and oppression that she kind of sits at um, and that her work Mm -hmm. is super focused on. I'm a gender queer non-binary person and I'm female bodied. So a lot of the things she said about that is specifically when she said that like the first traumatic things that happened to her were being born black and being born a woman that hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, Mm-hmm. Even like I grew up in church and just to think about how it even mm-hmm. like operates in church, especially because she talks so much about spirituality. Um, just that piece right there of like how traumatic it is to be born black and a woman, just that existence on its own really was like, yes, I hear you. And even when you talk about like dealing with white women and like they love to kind of mm-hmm. like erase that black piece of like we're all women Mm -hmm. like you know but like my issues are very Mm -hmm. different than a white woman's issue and I thought it was really Mm -hmm. yeah I mean that always super speaks to me because it's not it's not the same and a lot of white women kind of who probably sit under this exact work that we do right now are like well Mm -hmm. we're all women they probably are guilty of this as well of trying to like reduce an experience and just like not practicing nuance uh, when it comes to that. So that was like a big thing that stuck out for me. 
Now that that definitely resonated with me too. I mean, it's actually the first note. Um, so when we do these interviews, like I always like have like a page full of notes, and like the first yeah. thing that popped out was about her speaking about our need to in- address all forms of discrimination right. and oppression simultaneously. But that's the thing is like this addressing isn't from a place of distance for many of us. Mm-hmm. It's because we have like, these identities that are interlocked, and the modes of oppression that we deal with are also interlocked. Right. And so, I mean, I think it's a it's it's a good thing for people to keep in mind. It's like this isn't just about like head knowledge of of addressing discrimination. It's like, what are you gonna do? Because like right. this has very real effects for people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like you said, it's that what are you gonna do? And she like, which was really great. She talks about how like it's an all of us problem. You know, how like these problems mm-hmm. are interlocked. And it just reminds me of how like recently when Rihanna it's accepting her NAACP award. She said this very similar thing, right? Of like, you have friends who are of other races and other genders, right? And mm-hmm. they want to break bread with you, right? They like you, right? So this is also their problem mm-hmm. too. And I think that like a lot of white women, even ones who sit under this work and probably ones who, you know, read Rachel Ricketts' writing, people probably who financially mm-hmm. poured into her as well, they're not moving past mm-hmm. that. And they're doing that thing of like, well, that's a Black woman problem. Mm-hmm. And what's what's fascinating is that like this, this tension that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like this kind of casting off of people's responsibility. Like this isn't just an American thing. And right. I was very, very, very grateful Rachel name in that mm-hmm. like the anti-blackness and specifically the anti-blackness that like black women face is yeah. this is an international thing like Rachel's Rachel's Canadian and Rachel's also right. living abroad right um and so these are encounters that she's had with people who are outside of the context of the U.S. which is true for some of our listeners like mm-hmm. anti-blackness isn't just a thing that happens in the U.S. it's just something that we actually happen to do particularly well here these are facts. Yeah, the whole, like, I always <laughs> am, like, anti-Blackness is global. Um, people, I know mm-hmm. that the United States does have a, you know, the U.S., They it was like, you know, I'm in tech. There's this thing called iterative design of, like, how you put out something, mm-hmm. you just keep perfecting it. Like, racism in the U.S. was tested, like, out for years. You know, like, we when you go back, mm-hmm. Like when you think about even in Europe, how they tried to subdue the Scots-Irish folks, moving forward to mm-hmm. here, indigenous folks. And then they said, you know what? Mm-hmm. We need to displace people from their homelands and where they don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. And that was what worked for them. Like, I know that it's a particular brand, but again, like we see it in France disguised as nationalism. We see it in, mm-hmm. like, Asia and Southeast Asia where it looks like colorism in some places. So it's always interesting to me to hear people who live abroad or uh, even Canadians. Like, I mean, Rachel's from Canada mm-hmm. and how people kind of, like, think that Canada is some, like, racial, you know, utopia. And I immediately think of Janiya who has been doing work in Canada for a really long time. And if you ask Black people in Canada what's going on, they have a very different thing to say. So, like, the this Absolutely. thought that, like, anti-Blackness is just a U.S. thing is obviously coming from, like, color-redacted white folks, you know? 
<laughs> not color redacted. But I mean, like, but what you're saying is like 100% truth. Like, I think one of the things that she mentioned, um, she mentioned having a conversation with a now former friend mm-hmm. um, on that whole like colorblind nonsense, right? Sure. A thing that's very popular to say, and I thought that it was just a U.S. thing. Apparently not. Um, but where people are like, I never noticed that you were Black. I never saw your skin color. The lies. Like, the wait, lies. what? what? It's, <laughs> it's like, like the pure lies. It's like, how do you not notice another person's particularities? Like, Listen. and why, why, if that is actually true, which I don't believe it is, but like, why is that a thing that people like think is of value? To say that, hey, what is particular about you, what is unique about you, I don't actually see that. Child, well, but what's you know, the game there? I wonder what the game is. But for me, when people say stuff like that, it's just like you're telling on yourself. Because, like, if you have to erase my blackness to see me as, like, the same as you, you're a racist. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, oh, I see. So you're a racist is what you're saying. Oh, you didn't notice I was black because that makes you uncomfortable? You didn't notice I was black mm-hmm. because do you need to like go to the doctor and get your eyes checked? Like, is it a medical issue? Can you not see my black skin? Because to me, it just it makes me wonder, like, where do you live at? Is it some bird box mm-hmm. situation? Um, not bird just, box. I, have a, <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just have a lot of questions when people say, but also like it, a lot of answers come right from that. Okay. You don't see black people as equal because you had to erase my blackness to see me as equal or see me however you see me. Um, You need to erase Mm -hmm. differences to find solidarity, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. that's problematic. Um, It just says a lot of things Mm -hmm. about kind of like ignorance and about kind of where they stand. Mm -hmm. Even if they say, you know, they're allies, like someone who's an ally would never say, I don't see color. Well, yeah, because if you don't see color, you don't see, like, the things that I'm up against in the world. Right. And I don't need people, like, on my team who refuse to see not just, like, the the beauty of the particularity, right? Because, like, there is beauty in culture and in, 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 the, in our melanin. Like, mm-hmm. it's awesome. But also, like, there are some very real consequences to being Black or... Asian or indigenous right. or yeah. Latinx and Hispanic. Like they're they're very real consequences to our realities or lived realities as people of color. And when you tell us that you don't see skin color, that you don't notice that we are insert marginalized personhood. Mm-hmm. That you're what saying else? that you don't yeah. see the way that the world bears down on us, which means right. you also don't see our liberation. Mm. Listen, I it, constantly baffles me that this kind of thing is like still coming up in 2020 and like that people are still saying Mm -hmm. they don't see color of this like whole like whitewashing of identity just like in general Mm -hmm. and yet when I show up to a space where I'm the only black person I'm painfully aware right and also the people Mm -hmm. who are there are painfully aware that I'm black and very different than everyone else who's there so i just always i just i'm Mm -hmm. glad she brought that to light just on a global scale because i think that it's really important that a lot of people who are maybe like you know on the fence about its racial injustice 
hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing will open their eyes up and say, you know, it's not just the U.S. It is Canada. It is Sweden where she lives right now. Because when she said that she has like this fear of groups of white men, whoa, mm-hmm. I felt yeah. that so hard. Like, and she's living in yeah. Sweden, which is like white, white, you know, also like that dynamic of Afro mm-hmm. Swedish people to like black American people that mm-hmm. she brought up was really interesting too, because it just speaks to like how blackness is not a monolith and even how we like relate to it. racism is different, mm-hmm. like abroad. Like I know, like I always talk about France cause like how they use nationalism as like a cover for racism. Mm-hmm. But also, like, here in the Mm -hmm. U.S., when you meet continental Africans and sometimes even Caribbean people, we don't have, Mm -hmm. uh, at least her story about the guy on the train who was like, you see this Mm -hmm. man in a dress? Like, I'm her in that situation where people, black people Mm -hmm. come up to me with their, like, some of these, like, maybe more, like, bigoted views that have nothing to do with race. Maybe it's about gender about gender presentation and they were like this man is wearing a dress and i'm like wow are you you're threatened uh let me just school Mm -hmm. you real quick about it i thought that was really interesting too absolutely you know how this goes like i ask questions i'm a professional question asker it's what i do um but i mean there's consideration that we have to do around what forms our spirituality right Mm -hmm. right so for rachel her hers is a heart centered embodied approach that like is connected to empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, what are the, like what are some of the things that shape your spirituality? Uh yeah, I think that empathy is probably the biggest like heart centered that really resonated with me with with Rachel just because it really is for me the heart of people and just not even necessarily putting myself in their shoes, but that's what empathy is, I guess, of just saying, like, how would I feel if that was me? You know, I talk a lot about, um, for me, I like Black trans women is the hill that I will die on. And so, like, that intersection of gender and, and I grew up in church. So, like, when I, when I think of spirituality, I just think of, like, how I've divorced myself from dogma I've divorced myself from Mm -hmm. kind of this God that has a specific identity because if God is like all encompassing, God either is all or not. Uh, So a lot of the work that I do is definitely motivated by empathy and by just, I think people have the right to exist as they choose uh, as long as it doesn't hurt people you know like obviously I don't want no murderers running around but people should be able to be who they are and not feel afraid like that fear of and like when she talks about white comfort like that that fear of speaking Mm -hmm. up that fear of not being yourself that wears on your spirit as well and can break your Mm -hmm. spirit if you feel unable to be who you are um, and especially mm-hmm. just with like mental health crisis, just like rate on the rise for people and someone who struggles with things myself, not being able to be who mm-hmm. you are, just it wears on you. It's what is the point of life if you're living for someone else's gaze? Ooh. Mm. 
You know, I just think if I was living for how white people see me, if I was living for how straight people see me, it's just where where do I find things for myself? Mm -hmm. And what is the point Mm -hmm. of your life if you're not finding things for yourself? Mm-hmm. Mm. So let's talk about some of those finding things for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that like Rachel pointed to in her time in conversation with Andre is it's thinking about like what lights you up and gives you connection to yourself. Like what are those things for you? Uh, for me is music. Um, I'm about to like start doing music and I find a lot of like a lot of black people that are black artists musicians that i love they did this work too through their music you know like donny hathaway is one of my favorite Mm. people and he threw Mm. himself into you know doing things for black folks to feel empowered like they were worth something and that whole group i mean that whole group of people that kind of like came through the 70s marvin gay donny hathaway aretha franklin nina simone like people who threw took that talent that thing that gave them joy and used it for the greater good to just like say what black people are thinking give voice to these things that were in our heads you know like i immediately i think of like this reprise of donny hathaway's little ghetto boys everything has got to get better like for me that is the because things are better from when donny was here you know like things are better from when donny was here so that's a, that's the stuff that lights me up, like black art, like black expression, because we were so repressed for so long. Being able to really express myself creatively and is honestly like the only reason I live. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. Are there are there any other things that you want to touch on during mm-hmm. our time? I did kind of just want to talk about um, how she talked about Trump being elected. Um, We're obviously we're in an election year. And so uh, feelings Mm -hmm. around the presidency are high. We're seeing all these debates. And I actually was having a conversation Mm -hmm. with some people about Trump being elected and just like how I didn't really feel anything. Really, It didn't scare me that. Trump was elected uh as soon as he was Mm. like in the running I knew that there was a huge possibility that he might win and Mm. that's just you know based on my experience of the world as a black person I'm like you know there's a lot of people who believe this everything that Donald Trump is saying I'm from the south and I'm Mm -hmm. like yo like I I like my races where I can see them So when Donald Trump got elected, I always tell my friends, I'm like, I wasn't sad because it doesn't, I mean, black people have lived under worse presidents. But when she talked about like kind of this election thing and like how she didn't feel that much, it didn't seem that different to her. That really resonated with me just because I think that there was a lot of, I mean, I'm sure you remember how sad people were the day after the election. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly white mm-hmm. liberal people, white women. And I don't know if this happened to you, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of people coming up to me being mm-hmm. like, yo, I'm so sorry. Things are going to get so much worse. Yeah. 
and I felt yeah. so disrespected. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, have you, no, do you live here? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if nothing else, like the 2016 election showed the ways in which people were, um, unaware of what some of us had been going through. Mm-hmm. Actually, recently, um, had done a live tape in of, of another podcast and the other guests, um, as we were wrapping the show, um, the hosts were asking us questions about like what we were hopeful for or whatever, mm-hmm. and, or, or what we would say actually in response to people's hopelessness, because that had been a thing that had been right. shared with their listeners. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember just saying, like, I feel hopeful because I mean, as much as like this season sucks, we are able to see the ways in which it is sucked for a number of different groups of people. Yes. And out of a seeing that things have not been good for one another, we can come to new understandings of like what the world could and should be in, in, in like mitigating that mm-hmm. and addressing those things and caring for each other, extending empathy and using the tools of like our particularity to get to that place. Right. And the other, the other host, or not the other host, but the other guest um, on the show it shared something like akin to like, you know, I'm not hopeful. Like, you know, it's just hard, but like, you know, oh, what was it? I can't even remember hundred percent what it was, but it was just like, it's just such a dark time. And it's just like, I mean, you know, and this is a person like who, um, is a white man. Mm-hmm. And I had to be like, bruh, like you're sitting here talking about how bad it, what it is. You just got here. Mm. Like you're just feeling the press as a liberal white man. Like, one of the things that, like, sometimes I think about is, like, I think it's, like, spiritual sometimes and, mm-hmm. or, like, old church songs. And, like, one that came to mind that moment was We Come This Far By Faith. Mm, like, yeah, I'm, I'm the pro- a product of the Black Baptist Church. It's, like, Amen, we've same. come this far by faith, like, leaning on the Lean Lord. On the Lord. Yeah. Like, we've, we've been through some stuff. He's never failed so in the oh middle. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Never. You know, I think about like this is again at the ties to the ancestry, mm-hmm. like knowing what my grandma, what my great grandparents, my great greats, to the point that I have understanding of like my family lineage, because some of that's been cut off for me by mm-hmm. things like white supremacy. But extent that I know, I know that we made it this far where I'm in this present moment because of what we survived. Right. And so that is something I can take hope in because they pressed on, and that means that I can press on. Yeah. And it was just it was just an interesting moment where it's just like we've got two very different realities. It's like for you, this thing, this presidency was devastating. It's not that it doesn't, it's not that it's not without its challenges. It is. Like people are struggling and struggling in ways like I appreciate what you just said in terms of like liking your racist where you could see them. Yeah. I think that there are so many things that were systematized before that the blatant, just like not giving a crap of this current administration mm-hmm. has allowed for the veneer to drop. Yeah. And so it's like, we're now seeing like the man by, like hiding the screen, right? We see the mm. wizard where before we just heard the voice. Ooh. Um, yeah. So and, good. But that encourages me because we can see how small people are and how scared they are yeah. and how fear is what motivates their decisions and ignorance. And, and in that same way, for people who are on like kind of that precipice of like trying to figure out what they do and are struggling with the fact that they are incredibly privileged, but don't like to hear it because of like what that drums up in them. Mm -hmm. Like there are ways that we can live into the world where by people seeing us just live and 
create and like survive and yeah. also work towards thriving in the midst of this all, maybe just maybe they'll also find encouragement to press in and to press on and to like abdicate that privilege, to abdicate and walk away from like the ways in which they were harming other people. Mm, and because yeah. they see it actually does affect them. Yeah, now they do. Yeah, I think of when you said uh, we've come this far by faith, it also makes me think of lift every voice and sing because it just talks mm. about like, you know, um, sing of the song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Just, I love mm-hmm. being black. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It is so hard. But just like the, re- I mean, and not to glorify resilience, because obviously, like, if we had a choice, we wouldn't go through all this strife. But just the resilience mm-hmm. of Black folks. And it's like you said, like, these people who are like, oh, just now getting here and realizing. And now you hear people, especially since the 2016 election, being like, you know, listen to black women you see way more people being like a black woman Mm -hmm. should be president and that's problematic also Mm -hmm. but at least Mm -hmm. we're seeing a shift towards whose experiences are kind of being listened to even if it's on a small scale right now a shift is definitely happening where white people are like wow i had no idea and then they're moving to okay, some people did have an idea. Let me listen to those people. Mm -hmm. And that brings us people like Rachel Ricketts, you know, who are, Mm -hmm. who there are people Mm -hmm. who are like, I need to listen to black women. I need to listen Mm -hmm. to these marginalized voices who've been living this for so long and figure out what I can do and what the best way is to do it. Mm -hmm. So I feel hopeful too. You know, Mm -hmm. I said at least the United States is being honest. And that's how I feel. It was the most honest representation of the presidency and of the U.S. government that I think we have had in a long time. I concur. And I think out of that place of honesty, we're able to really look at um, a possibility. Mm. And that's yeah. that's what my, my my hope lies in. I mean, I know this is hope and hard pills. And for some of y'all, like some of these pills that got delivered in this recording mm-hmm. will be a little difficult for you to swallow. But at the same time, like hope still abides. And and I hope not to like, you know, overuse the word, but mm-hmm. hope that you'll like take encouragement and knowing that like we see how change could come. We see how social transformation can occur. But it's it's in looking at the possibilities that lie in the examples of those of us who have survived and endured and who have been resilient um, and just show the world like what possibility lies in like being who you truly are. Yeah. A new world is possible. It doesn't have to be this Mm -hmm. way. You know, it's just all Mm -hmm. what we're all about here. (laughs) It really doesn't. And a new world is possible. Yeah. I think that that's a, a great note to end this particular conversation on. Nandi, I am so grateful that you chose to spend time with us today. Like, it means a lot. And I'm really excited for our listeners to hear more of your incredible, thoughtful, like, inspired voice soon. I hope so. Yeah, definitely looking forward to it. So, y'all, you know that we ask questions in every episode. And here's your rundown of this week's questions. 
What forms of repression do you call out or point to as being an issue? What activated you in working to address these issues? What beliefs or ideas give shape to your spirituality? What were you brought up to believe? What do you choose to believe? How does your spirituality come into contact with or impact your justice-seeking work? What lights you up and gives you life in your connection with yourself? What are your thoughts or wonderings about yourself and what lies outside of yourself? Given that your energy is finite, who do you dedicate it to as you work for change in yourself and in the world? Who doesn't get your energy? Who do you want to give more of your energy to? So again, thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope and Hard Pills. I'm Alicia Crosby. And I'm Nandi K. And we've been really glad to have you with us this week. Thank you to our wonderful supporters, our patrons um, who are sharing their resources with us in order to make this show possible. If you want to join this team of supporters, stay tuned. Um, our producer, Ross Montgomery, will be sharing information on how to support what we do here at Open Heart. So next time. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, AliciaTCrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace.